So thank you all for joining this webinar. Uh, this is a series of more webinars that we're going to have. Um, as I said in the beginning, uh, this is going to be recorded and we're having this as a, um, as a webinar panel because obviously there are so many people joining and um, there's also, since this uh, webinar went out to a full list and to all our supporters, there might be a risk that some trolls <laughs> can join in and write some stuff, but uh, we're on it. So yeah. Um, so I'm Afrida. Um, I work for Hope Nahid Charitable Trust. I'm the activism officer and we have Joe Mulhall with us, uh, Dr. Joe Mulhall, who's a senior researcher. Um, today we're going to talk about uh, like the British far right, uh, what's going on today. Uh, but this is a part of uh, the Great Get Together weekend. Uh, if you don't know what it is, um, it's um, uh, every year we celebrate the memory of Joe Cox. Uh, who was brutally murdered and um, this week this year obviously we cannot come together physically so we're doing these webinars and we have uh, also um, done some food banks and um, some material we can share online which we will show later uh, you'll see someone named Hope Nahid in the uh, below that's Joe he's in the background uh, looking at looking over our chat just monitoring everything and uh, so yeah he's in the background if there's anything and if there might be someone who might be a bit um annoying or um some trolls coming in the chat that might be uh, we might cancel uh, we might shut down the chat for a little while uh but yeah so please be as interactive as you can we have a q a button down below in the bar uh please feel free to ask questions um we're gonna have four different sections so every section you can ask questions otherwise we'll answer all the questions at the end of this webinar so yeah um as i said this is being recorded so we will be able to send this out for anyone um for anyone who's missing it if you want to share it later uh, so yeah and i also want to give a big welcome to our activist groups uh, our local groups and i will talk about them a bit later uh, if you want to join a local group or or so uh, so yeah, um, I think we can get started, Joe. Um, could you tell us about how the far-right scene in the UK is looking like right now? Are they becoming bigger? Are they becoming smaller? What's going on? Yeah, sure. Um, so it's a bit of an interesting time, actually, uh, on the UK far-right scene. If we look at the traditional far-right that many of us would have been looking at for a few many years past, your British National Parties, your National Fronts, even the English Defence League and things like that, they are the smallest they've been in decades, in some cases, since their founding. Uh, I mean, especially that kind of electoral British far right in the form of the British National Party, which was such a huge threat back in 2010 when it was, you know, it had two MEPs, it had over 60 councillors, it had, you know, it was running for elections, it had the biggest turnout electorally for the British far right ever, um, has all but disappeared in the last 10 years and split and splintered. So there is some good news there. Things like the National Front have split and splinter as well, and they're absolutely tiny. The English Defence League in the last 10 years has gone from a real force on the streets to uh, almost nothing barely existing. And, it, and Britain first, from a period when it had millions of people on social media, or supposedly millions of people on social media, has again has been deplatformed and marginalised. So there's lots of good news there it, on the surface. However, I think actually what we've seen is a change in the nature of the threat in, in the last 10 years, and what we're facing now is somewhat different. We have a major threat from the kind of radical right, so the much less extreme end. So Nigel Farage, of course, and the Brexit party. Um, if we look last year, they, of course, won the European election, though they failed to translate that in the general election, uh, winning just 2% of the vote. 
But Nigel Farage is still on the scene. He's still attempting to try and find his new place on the kind of spectrum of politics at the moment. His big new thing in the last couple of months has been to talk about boats arriving uh, across the channel. And that's something we're going to be watching him trying to exploit over the next coming months without question. And of course, we still have Brexit to come at the end of the year and we'll have to see what's going to happen with Brexit. But he's certainly going to be watching that very closely. So the Brexit party on the radical right is one thing to really watch at the moment, whether or not they're going to kind of they've essentially relaunch this last week. Um, and so we'll have to see how that sort of manifests in the coming months. On the much more extreme end, we've got the, the Nazi terrorist scene, which is a really, really worrying scene at the moment. I mean, this year we've had, or in the last year or so, we've had record levels of far-right terrorism arrests. Um, this year they were up a third on last year. Um, I think now we are down to one in six terrorist prisoners in prison being from the far-right, um, which, is, which is a dramatic rise. We've got about 44 people in the last year convicted of far-right terrorism offences. So that's extremely worrying. And a part of that is, I mean, there's a whole host of reasons for that. Partly is, is that National Action was banned. National Action was this kind of neo-Nazi terrorist organisation that was banned in, uh, by the government in 2016 and prescribed the first kind of far-right prescription since about 1939. Because there's a banned far-right terrorist organisation being involved in it, just being involved in it is a criminal offence. And so that has increased the numbers of people getting arrested for it. But I do also think there's been an upswing in terms of the amount of terrorist activity as well, in terms of people getting sucked into that form of far-right politics. Partly that's because, and linked to the decline of the British National Party and those electoral forces, there's parts of the British far-right that feel there's no way they're going to get, gain power through the ballot box, so they've started to look to these more extreme ends. And we're really worried about it. We're seeing much younger groups of people come in to the British far extreme far right and getting involved in much more extreme stuff. Some of the really fringe stuff at the very end, order of nine angles and these sorts of things, and this post-national action scene, much of it happening on the Telegram system, the, the kind of social media app that many of you may have heard of, we're really concerned about. It's young, it's very, very active. We're seeing, we pick up lots of things about weapons, manufacturing weapons, bomb manuals. So that's one that's really, really needs to be watched very closely. And, it, and it's welcome that we've seen an upswing in arrests. And then on top of all of this is something that we at Hope Not Hate call the post-organizational far-right. So this is the kind of far-right that doesn't exist inside those traditional organizations. Um, it doesn't exist, you don't join the British National Party or become you know, a member of the, the East Anglia branch of the English Defence League. It's much more decentralized. It's much less, form like it's not formally organized as such. And it really is just this amorphous mass of individuals engaging in micro donations of time, money, activism in all sorts of ways, often online, often anonymous, but also sometimes on the streets. And there's these figureheads that we're concerned about. The most obvious one, of course, is Stephen Yatsley Lennon, better known as Tommy Robinson. He's still around. Um, he's had a bad few years. He's been in and out of prison, but he's still around. We, start, we saw him kind of emerge back onto the scene with a bang in the last couple of weeks around some of the Black Lives Matter stuff, which I'm sure we'll cover. But you have these figureheads online, and these individuals can have vast numbers. Just yesterday, YouTube removed a British YouTuber called The Iconoclast. He had like nearly 22 million views on his channel. He had hundreds of thousands of subscribers, and yet most people have never heard of him. So we're seeing a change in the way the British far right operates to this kind of more post-organization. So there's the three areas. You've got the radical right, you've got the extreme kind of Nazi terrorist wing, and then you've got this big, broad online milieu. And that's kind of a broad overview of where we are at the moment.
which is depressing, but it's, you know, it's not all bad news. Thank you, Joe. Um, so a couple of questions that have come in about the far right. Um, so Gary asks, how far does the language of the government give support to the far right? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think there's no doubt one of the major problems we've seen in the last, well, in fact, last few decades, really, but um, is the mainstreaming of far right narratives. In some ways, we don't need far right political parties because so much of that politics is looked after by the mainstream, both the mainstream press and mainstream politics. I mean, uh, it almost feels inconceivable that we would have a prime minister like Boris Johnson in power that has talked about, well, I mean, I won't even repeat some of the things he's said. Um, and more came out this week about some of the stuff he said around Trebrenica. So I think part of it is a, a very similar to some of the phenomena we saw in the late 70s in 1979. The National Front was very strong and Margaret Thatcher pulled the rug out from underneath the National Front by talking about us being swamped by people of an alien culture. I think there's, we're seeing some of that as well now, partly the Brexit debate, partly the right wing of the Conservative Party, um, and partly because of our elements of our mainstream press, right-wing and far-right narratives, especially around the issues of Islam and Muslims, have become much more normalised and much more mainstream, um, meaning that you don't necessarily need to go engage with far-right politics because a lot of those narratives are served by the mainstream. Thank you, Joe. Um, Rosemary asks, did many uh, members of the Britain first join the Tory party after the election? It's extremely difficult to say. I mean, the, one of the difficulties with Britain First is what they say and what they actually, the reality is often extremely different. Even when they had millions of people on social media, a huge chunk of that wasn't real, a huge chunk of it was bought. And even at their peak online, they could never really muster more than a few dozen people offline on the streets. It was this huge divergence. So when they make these, and, and still today, you know, they had a pull down the Nelson Mandela statue petition of last week, you know, and it started at 70,000. So there's so many lies, it's extremely difficult to kind of work out what is true and what is not. So when some of them said we support Boris Johnson and we should join the Tory party, the truth of the matter is, is there's not many people that actually do what Britain First say or listen to them. And so it's not like there's hundreds of thousands of Britain First activists that flooded into the Tory party. Actually, say. I mean, the problem is, is that obviously we don't have access to <laughs> um, the membership lists of any of the major political parties. So we, I can't kind of comment definitively. But there were certainly some groups within the far, like Tommy Robinson was another one that said in the last election, support Boris Johnson because of some of the things he'd said. Um, so it's something that the Conservative Party needs to take more seriously. Um, there is increasing evidence and there's long been evidence of problems with Islamophobia within the Conservative Party and Britain first fit perfectly within that. Um, and so you know, there's lots to be done and it needs to be dealt with. But I can't give you a number and say X amount of Britain first ended up in the Tories if we don't have their information. Thank you. There's a lot of questions coming in now. Some of them will be answered um, later in this um, call. Uh, but another question asked about from Dylan from Hitchin. Do you think electoral reform, more specifically changing the voting system, would empower or disempower the far right? Yeah, another really difficult question. Now, I mean, there's no doubt, of course, that for a long time, a lot of the literature about the British far right, lots of people kind of argued that it was separate because if we looked at what was happening in France with the Front National, um, Sweden with the Swedish Democrats or, uh, you know, Liga in Italy or the uh, AFD in Germany. Um, people would often look at Britain as kind of this exception because we had no, you know, just explicitly far-right figures in Parliament. Um, but a huge chunk of that was, of course, uh, because of the electoral system, first past the post. I mean, I think a million people voted for the British National Party at one election, four million people voted for UKIP. If we'd had a more representative form of democracy, there was no question we would have had British National Party 
MPs in Parliament and we would have had huge swathes of um, UKIP and then the Brexit Party. I mean, if we look at the Brexit Party, won the European elections, um, but got zero seats in the general election. But generally speaking, I don't think that the way that we're going to defeat the far right is by keeping a kind of a political system in place, which that's the way we beat them, is we marginalise them by having a first-past-the-post system. I think there's lots of good reasons. I mean, it's not really hope, not hate's perspective or my position to kind of say what I would prefer as an electoral system, but there is no doubt that the current electoral system has reduced the amount of far-right people that have got into positions of political power, and that's very, very positive. There is some broader arguments about perhaps it disenfranchises people or people feel like they're less inclined to vote or less engaged, and some of those things contribute to the cultural issues which drive far-right politics. But generally speaking, as an overview, first-past-the-post system has saved us a huge amount of times in Britain from having much more active far-right politics in Parliament. Thank you. Um, I'll take a couple of more questions before we move on. Um, I promise I'll try to, we'll try to answer all the questions. There's a lot of good questions coming in. Uh, some of them will be covered throughout our um, uh, webinar here. Um, but there's one question, um, how great, from Alison, um, how great is the risk of infiltration of far-right groups into liberal left or left groups? Say that again, sorry. How great is the risk of infiltration of far-right groups into liberal or left groups? Um, I mean, I wouldn't say it's, a, it's the major risk we face in terms of the far right. Um, one area that we hope not hate have been concerned about is, is some of the crossover around the far right trying to co-opt the issues like climate change. Um, watching far right figures and far right movements either engaging in kind of more explicit eco-fascism. But this isn't just in the UK. I mean, across Europe, we've seen originally our big concern was that the far right would just deny climate change, which, of course, big swathes of it do. But actually, we've also seen large chunks of the international far right co-opt the issue um, and offer solutions which are kind of much more nationalistic in tone. So closed borders, stop immigration, stop migration, um, buy local, you know, those sorts of issues, some of which are fine, some of which are not. Um, and so in that area of climate change, there is a concern, you know, also discussions around population control. Um, there is that sort of crossover in certain areas, which is really worrying. So that's the big area there. More broadly, there's also in terms of a crossover, sometimes we've seen around the issue of anti-Semitism. So whether or not that's some of the issues of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party or on the broader left, um, this kind of crossover notion of um, some forms of kind of completely legitimate anti-capitalist politics becoming slightly more conspiratorial and talking about the Rothschilds, you know, uh, secret forces, etc. That area as well, we sometimes see some crossover with kind of left wing and right wing. Um, things. So the kind of climate movement and some of the more conspiratorial areas um, are areas where we see crossover. But I, it's not, I wouldn't want to give the impression in either case that this is a major problem. We're really concerned about there's much bigger problems with the British far right. So if you have, um, if, you're, um, if you're interested about eco-fascism and uh, far right um, and climate change, uh, we have a magazine that's come out uh, specializing in eco-fascism and climate change. Um, we, if you're interested, we are, we are happy to uh, learn, like, learn what you want to learn about in our upcoming webinars. There might be, we can do a webinar about climate change particularly as well. So uh, yeah, this, this webinar is particularly just to give an overview of most of the things. But um, let's take another question uh, before we move on. Um, there was a good question here, hold on. There's a really good questions coming in here. Um, so, 
sorry. Okay, um, if Brexit brings more economic distress, might the far right resurge on the back of scapegoating of minorities, etc.? Yeah, I mean, I think both there's a combination of the economic effects of or the possible economic effects of Brexit, coupled with the much more probably inevitable economic effects of the global pandemic. It's something we're extremely worried about. I mean, I think sometimes these debates become overly binary and it's either the, the cause of the far right is all economic or it's all social and it's all about immigration, etc. Of course, the truth is that it's much more complex. It's a mixture of both. But economics is something that's really, really worrying. Um, you know, there is plenty of historical examples of how uh, really tough economic times results in rises in the far right. Partly that's through because of things like economic nationalism, saying that we need to look after our own first, um, greater competition for low-skilled labour, um, higher levels of unemployment, general higher levels of anger at governments and, the, and general elites, you know, dissatisfaction more generally, people looking for alternatives, and also people looking for very kind of simple monocausal explanations for very complex problems. Um, economic crisis is is really bad for these things it gives the far right in, in they can come in and tell you well the reason you haven't got a job is because there's too many immigrants the reason that you haven't got a house or you can't get a hospital is because there's too many foreign people here they offer these very simple answers to these very complex questions and we've got kind of covid coming in on top of this we've got issues around immigration you know there's going to be narratives about p foreigners coming in and closing borders there's a really febrile time at the moment and it's something that we've got to watch very closely. And I think we're going to have a big economic problem, um, possibly because of Brexit, but certainly because of whatever, you know, we've got the indicators around this pandemic are going to be really negative economically. And that's something we've got to be really vigilant around uh, because the far right will 100% seek to exploit this. Um, and you throw in the cultural issues as well, because it's a mixture of both. And we've got a really rough year ahead of us. Thank you. So on top of that, um, what have their, uh, the far right's response been with the pandemic or after the pandemic? Could you t uh, talk more about that? Yeah, I mean, it's a mixture, right? So the pandemic, I mean, you could start by actually saying that there's some possible positives that, that come out of this in terms of the far right politics. Partly, um, it's very difficult to say how, but there's, if you look at some of the polling around both Europe, North America and South America, there's a lot of disquiet with the way that some populists have dealt with the issue in power. So, of course, Trump in America, Bolsonaro in Brazil. Um, you've also seen some poor polling for people like Liga in Italy, um, slumps for the AFD in Germany as well, and other places where the populist radical right has just failed to have a voice in this discussion. People have looked back to the mainstream. Um, it's not all good news there. Some places in Italy, people have actually looked to the even further extreme right. So that's complex. And then you've got places like Hungary where, you know, they've genuinely become fundamentally anti-democratic countries uh, for this period with Orban and some of the stuff that's been going on there, which are really worrying. There is some talk about people looking towards things like greater sense of community, uh, more cohesion, people getting on with their neighbours, people having a sense of common uh, endeavour, common identity, working together. Some of these things are obviously really bad for far-right politics. Um, and could would be really great. Uh, hopefully, you know, if there's going to be some you know, positives that have come out of this dreadful situation, it is a greater sense of community in some areas. And that makes it much harder for the far right. If people know their neighbours and their people get on and they come along, it's much harder for the far right to exploit it. With all that said, of course, the far right's reaction to the pandemic has been uh, 
in some places, uh, depending on the conspiratorial side, has been obviously to deny it and push fake news, uh, conspiracy theories. Um, in other senses, it has been to exploit it. A large element of, especially the radical rights offer to people, is that we will offer you safety, we will offer you security. And of course, right now, they can't do that. And in place of that, you're gonna see certain people and have already seen certain people and groups around the world saying the way we deal with this is to close borders, is to end immigration, um, offering a false sense of safety and security at a time when they can't actually offer a real one because we're in the middle of a global pandemic. You've also then got, as we mentioned before, this kind of economic issue coming in, which is gonna be really, really difficult. You've also got rising levels of anger and uh, kind of uh, lack of trust in elites more generally because of the way that often these, these issues have been dealt with. Um, there's also anger at the media and the press, and this is kind of, we've seen quite high spikes in some of this stuff. And then on top of all of this, we've seen a massive explosion of conspiracy theories, um, much of which coming from the far right. And I think a lot of the focus in the press has been on how new these conspiracies are. It's about, you know, 5G, you know, being conspiracy. It's about the COVID vaccine, which doesn't exist yet. It's about Bill Gates. I think lots of people have seen these conspiracy theories. What we've noticed to Hope Not Hate is very much that most of these conspiracy theories are merely updates of existing conspiracy theories. It's about kind of super conspiracies. It's about new world orders. It's about secret elites, deep states. Um, some of them are just carbon copies. You know, 5G is almost indistinguishable from long-standing far-right conspiracies about fluoridation in the water. Um, the anti-vaccine movement predates, of course, COVID and was talking about MMR for many years. What we have seen, which is really worrying, is huge numbers engaged with these. If you're looking at Facebook channels that we monitor, uh, all sorts of social media platforms that we would monitor on a daily basis at Hope Not Hate, the number of people engaging in this content is vast. Millions. Um, and, you know, David Icke is a good example. You know, David Icke's content, some people think it's funny and amusing because it's about lizards and the Queen's a lizard and uh, it's all amusing. Actually, it's extremely anti-Semitic uh, when you dig down into it. And we've got people, uh, tens of millions of people watching his videos in the last few months. That's really, really worrying. So you put these things together, COVID has kind of, in some ways, while there might be some positives, has also opened up a load of doors. And what we're really worried about is that essentially a lot of these things are rabbit holes. People sat at home might engage with a, kind of come across a COVID conspiracy website or a, a YouTube video. You know, Plandemic is the famous one, which has been watched millions of times around the world. People engage in that, and then some people go down that rabbit hole. And if you think of conspiracy theories almost like a bookshelf, at the one end, there's the relatively harmless. It's JFK. It's, well, it wasn't harmless for him. But, but I mean, the conspiracies about JFK and the moon landings uh, at one, you know, being faked at one end. And the further you go down that shelf, the closer you get to Holocaust denial and these kind of more anti-Semitic conspiracy theories about Jewish world control. And we've picked up really worrying signs of people being radicalized inside these groups. So where someone starts by talking about, is a, you know, asking questions, is a vaccine for 5G going to be safe or is it going to be Bill Gates tracking us? And then someone will respond with a video about how the Holocaust didn't happen. And then you can watch in real time this person go down that rabbit hole and start saying, I didn't realize Hitler was such a good guy. And this is something we're really worried about is this huge numbers being funneled in at the top in the last two or three months. And, and they won't all go down that funnel, but some will. And that's going to be one to really watch. So lots of people, the short answer is the far right is attempting to exploit it online, but offline, 
haven't always been that successful, especially uh, in the polls around Europe, North America and, and South America. Thank you, Joe. Um, there's a question about um, conspiracy theories here. Um, and um, all right. as I said, there's a lot of questions coming in. Uh, we will get to most of them. There's some of them getting answered uh, at the end. So um, Dan writes, a recent survey on coronavirus conspiracies found roughly 20% of Brits believe the virus had been sent by Muslims and roughly 20% of Brits thought it had been sent by Jews. How much overlap do you think there is between these cohorts? So, I mean, if you look at, generally speaking, uh, Islamophobic and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, there's always a, a relatively large crossover. Um, one thing you often find is um, that it's like the more extreme you get, the closer to anti the anti-Semitic ones it comes. So often, for example, anti-Muslim conspiracies about a conscious plan to invade Europe, for example, Eurabia is the famous example of that conspiracy theory. Muslims are consciously uh, coming to Europe to invade and take over. That's the first level. And then often you'll get a second level to that conspiracy, which is, and the Jews are the ones that are bringing this about. They, you know, they're using the Muslims to, 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 to reduce Europe and take greater control. So often there's a, huge, there's a crossover there. So those people at the more extreme end will believe in both. They will believe the Jews are causing it, but Muslims are coming here to take over. Um, and also, I mean, sometimes you might say that, oh, you look at varying conspiracy theories and see that they've seemed contradictory. Um, but for lots of these conspiracy theorists, it doesn't matter a huge amount if they have, they, they seem quite comfortable holding contradictory conspiracy theories simultaneously um, and flipping between them as and when it makes them feel comfortable. Um, but it does show that, I mean, I think just on those stats there, firstly, it shows, of course, the huge numbers that have engaged with this content and believed in this stuff, which is really terrifying. But second to that is, it's, I think, sometimes quite easy to laugh at these conspiracy theories. We just presume it's kind of crackpots sitting in, in their basements watching weird David Icke videos or they're, you know, groups of men in duffel coats meeting in pubs in London. Um, but the truth is, of course, is that generally speaking, a lot of these conspiracies at their core is about finding someone to blame. And invariably that ends up on a minority community. Conspiracy theories are the kind of lifeblood of, of hatred movements often. You know, not all far right figures, sorry, not all conspiracy theorists are far right, of course, but almost most far right figures are conspiracy theorists. And so a big chunk of these people to explain these very complex and difficult and sometimes scary world phenomena will often find a scapegoat. And that's of course, invariably Muslims or Jews at the moment. Thank you. Um, there's a question from Helen says, uh, saying, how do we counter these conspiracy theories and far right narratives on social media? And for this, for this great get together weekend, we have created kind of like an informative digital content, uh, which we can share in your WhatsApp group where you have seen people sharing conspiracy theories or misinformation. So Joe, could you, uh, could you show those, um, um, those content that what we have created? Uh, we will also send a link out in this chat later uh, so you can share them um, so this is five ways you can spot online this this information so the first one um is let's see here <laughs> uh, you so pause if it makes you outraged um the second one is you can read about it a little bit quickly who else is reporting the story just think about uh is there anyone else is there any reputable newspaper who has covered it or is it just um, from an un, uh, unreliable source. Uh, the third one is 
So don't immediately trust your eyes. Um, you have to like, it might not be solid proof. People are really easy to manipulate pictures and videos these days. There's old images that have surfaced uh, and to fit the narrative today um, and so on. And the fourth one is uh, always look into the messenger. Who is the author? Uh, which is really important. Um, and the fifth one is make sure you check your math. So sometimes the numbers, they don't add up and that might be shocking. So yeah, do the math. Uh, if you're not good at math, ask someone who is uh, to check it out. But we, can we will share these contents that you can share around your Facebook groups, WhatsApp groups later. Um, and yeah, um, I think, uh, I hope that answers the question. So these are some of the things you can do uh, to be vigilant about what's, what the conspiracy theories are. Um, yeah. Um, and I wanted to ask some other questions that's come in. Um, there's a lot of questions about um, deplatforming and if deplatforming works. We saw yesterday that um, Katie Hopkins had her Twitter account deplatformed or taken away. Um, do we think that, as Ian Sturman asked, uh, will these deplatforming um, measures have a, uh, is it a good measure for the long run to eradicate the far right? Yes, I'm very passionate about deplatforming. Um, I think there's, you know, there's a huge amount of interesting debates that, that need to be engaged with seriously about these platforms and, and, and the issue of freedom of speech and not taking it lightly and just trampling on the issue of freedom of speech or just ignoring people when they raise legitimate or, or real concerns about the role of free speech and these major social media platforms. However, I think the evidence is extraordinarily clear. Firstly, these social media companies offer platforms or have offered platforms to far-right figures that they never had previously in the pre-internet age. Um, they have made it just so much easier to engage with far-right content. Traditionally, if you wanted to read a, a piece of Holocaust denial or engage with something really extreme on the far right, you had to go to the far right, go to a book list, buy it, on, you know, buy it from them. You knew what it was and where you were getting it from. Uh, now, the amount of people that just stumble across far right content on social media and online is just vastly increased. And I think if we look at the different roles that different platforms play, we can see why deplatforming has been so successful, is so successful. When Tommy Robinson was on something like Facebook and Twitter, he was engaging with normal people. Lots of normal people are on those platforms. And you would come across his content, you could engage with his content by mistake. People didn't know who he was, or if they did know who he was, they could find his content really, really easily. Um, so what you start to see is that this, these are the platforms on which, in which recruitment happens. And we've seen time and time again over the last decade how major mainstream platforms have been so useful for recruiting people to the far right. When people are deplatformed, they then, of course, move over and migrate to smaller platforms. At the moment, that's things like Telegram, um, which has like channels which people use. Um, people move off YouTube and they use things like BitChute uh, and these kind of much more marginalized platforms. For, uh, and the key there is, is that while they continue to be a threat on those platforms, because but they are mainly speaking to themselves. They are mainly speaking to other far-right activists who are consciously in those channels. The idea, their ability to reach other and normal people with their hateful views is hugely reduced. The other element which is really important is their ability to reach victims is hugely uh, reduced. Far-right people on mainstream platforms can contact and send hate to individuals, uh, and which can be extremely painful for those people and really worrying. Um, 
moving them off those platforms to more specifically far right ones reduces their impact massively. And I think Tommy Robinson is the perfect example of this. You know, at his height, when we saw some of those vast demonstrations in 2017 and 18, you know, he had tens of thousands of people on his platform. If he called an event, tens of thousands of people instantly saw it. We saw much larger numbers on the streets. We saw some of the biggest far right demonstrations since the 1930s. Um, once he came off those platforms, if you look at some of the demonstrations that happen after that, is he's just reaching so fewer people that much fewer people turn out. Um, and the people he's reaching are people who are already supporters. So it massively reduces their impact. Um, so I think it's really positive. There's lots of discussions about where you draw the line and how close to the mainstream you go. And, and those are, are really important debates. But I think there's no question that generally speaking, social media companies have behaved utterly appallingly on this issue and failed for a decade. And post Charlottesville in America, things have got better. Facebook has got much better. You know, YouTube remains the bad actor in all of this. Everyone's, you know, basically still on there, you know, except for a few that have been taking off. Uh, and they took the iconoclast off yesterday, which was a, a really positive step. But they're always five steps behind here, and there's a huge amount more to do. But it reduces the amount of people that engage in hate. It reduces the ability to attack victims, and it reduces the impact of far-right figures around the world. So I just think they're all really positive things. And on the free speech debate, you know, there's a difference between having the right to say what they want and having the right to say exactly where they want. And I think we need to be careful to challenge that narrative that the far right use all the time, which is just because Katie Hopkins has been kicked off a privately owned platform, a private platform, she somehow had her freedom of speech, this is censorship. She can still say her horrible racist shit wherever she wants. Uh, sorry, what she wants, but she just can't say it on Twitter anymore. She still has that right to say it and she doesn't have the right to monetize it anymore. Uh, and that's positive. Thank you. Um, there's another, some other questions about deplatforming and uh, conspiracy theories. Um, see, Deb asks, do, to what extent do the originaries believe that are conspiracy theories or are they deliberately made up to encourage blame and unrest? Yeah, it's a mixture. Um, it's always really hard. This is always the big question about Holocaust denial, going back to 1945, you know, 44. How many people actually who deny the Holocaust genuinely don't believe that it happened? Um, the problem is, is that actually these conspiracy theories are much more nuanced. You know, when you take something like Holocaust denial, there's only a very small fraction that genuinely believe nothing happened, but a much larger proportion believe questions that say the numbers, it wasn't six million, or the camps were typhus camps. So on those sorts of areas, they're much more nuanced. Currently what we see is it's a mixture of things. Some of these things we see conspiracy theories which are literally created in these online spaces as jokes and they see how far they can spread them and see what traction they can get. Um, in other areas they are genuinely believed. Part of it's almost like a door once they step through it. Once there is a, the first, once that major belief in that super conspiracy exists, the idea that there is a secret force at play once that exists, um, the rest of it follows. It's very easy to then believe anything and just to draw the dots and connect things that, that don't actually connect in real life. So while there is some examples of people just creating these things and pushing them for fun, um, it's actually really surprising how many people genuinely believe this stuff. You know, it's terrifying. Thank you. Um... Some other questions. Um, how do we combat the influence of mainstream media as it sets the narrative perception for communities which aren't ethnically diverse? 
Yeah, I mean, the first thing is don't buy bad newspapers, obviously. Um, you know, even if you think I really like the sports section in the Daily Mail, it's probably not, you know, some of the, the narratives that they do in terms of especially shaping views around Muslims, for example, means just don't buy it. Um, there are also lots of people and individuals that have been very good at challenging mainstream newspapers. So when they put out uh, misinformation or they put out uh, slightly uh, stories, especially around, I mean, obviously the big one is Islam and Muslims. Uh, in, in a lot of those mainstream newspapers is to write in, is to challenge them, is to report them, um, is to tell people about them, is to, and also to have conversations with, you know, um, very few people live in these kind of pure bubbles of progressive lefty communities where everyone kind of gets on and dislikes racism. You know, we all have friends and we all have family and, and it's about engaging with them and trying to, in a constructive way and, and explaining to some of those mainstream newspapers, you know, why it's probably not wise to engage with some of them, especially things obviously like the more extreme and like the, the Daily Express. And these newspapers have been really, really important for pushing prejudice narratives. Um, and so challenging, I think that's the thing is there, is challenging so in the most positive and progressive way you, like you can. Um, you don't need to get too extreme about it, but speaking with people and then challenging those newspapers yourself. You know, I mean, you can write to the editors, you should report falsehoods, uh, you know, those sorts of things. And, you know, support campaigns. There's lots of campaigns out there for defunding. You know, things like Sleeping Giants have been really successful at getting um, either, main, you know, so even sometimes cases in, in mainstream, but certainly kind of far-right websites, getting advertising taken away. And that's been a really positive thing. You know, if you see a really vile headline in the newspaper and the, there is an advert next to it for Clark's Shoes, write to Clark Shoes and say how angry you are about it. You know, put pressure on people. Um, money talks in this area, especially in the mainstream press. So some of that can be really, really useful. And we're seeing some of that happen in America with uh, big companies pulling out from Facebook this past week. Actually, as an example, North Face yesterday said they're not going to uh, advertise on Facebook until they get rid of some of this hate content. Those sorts of things can be really positive and we can apply some of those things to the mainstream press as well. Thank you. Um... So Steve asks, as Telegram appears to be the medium of choice for far-right groups and seems to be almost unmoderated, do you know whether this channel is now on the, on the radar of the authorities? So Telegram is just a dreadful actor in this, right? They are awful. I mean, they, have, they started to get rid of some Islamist channels and some kind of ISIS channels a while ago. Um, they've done very little in terms of the far-right. Well, in fact, nothing, really. Um, there is a growing understanding that this is a hotbed for terrorism. I mean, the, ter the Terragram is kind of what it's called on the far right. Dozens of platforms, some are based in the UK, some are based in America, some are based in Russia, but they're, but they're all over the world where they're circulating extreme terrorist material, 3D gun, you know, printing guns, um, how to modify weapons, how to attack power stations, all those things. This is a cesspit of vile racism, encouraging attacks. Um, more needs to be done. I mean, the problem is, is that a huge amount of this already breaks existing laws, right? It's not like we need a whole swathe of new legislation to deal with this. It's so that we have to just try and find ways to enact, you know, terrorism content is illegal in the United Kingdom. We've got very strict terrorist legislation. Um, and there's huge amounts there. And it's about trying to find ways to prosecute it. The problem is, of course, is that a huge amount of it's anonymous. It's very difficult to find out who these people are. Um, but I do think there needs to be more political pressure. I think we need to see politicians step up on this. Partly, I think they just lots of politicians don't understand it as a major threat. But we need to see the ones that do speak out on it more, and we need to pressurise Telegram to act more responsibly. Whether or not that's the politicians, the government, or whether or not that's the, you know the police and the authorities more generally, this stuff is really extreme, 
and it's having a real effect and more needs to be done and telegram currently are not responding to anything um, you know we have sent them lists of lists of vile extreme stuff and almost nothing has ever happened um, and so is everyone else doing it, working in this area so we need to build public pressure as well you know the more people that talk about this the more journalists that write about it the more activists that speak out on this issue um, it's all about reputation for these companies and we know they can do it they did it for the islamic state so why can't they do it for nazi terrorists um, I'm sure I, don't, I can't speak to specifically what the authorities are doing on this. Um, you know, I don't, I don't have it in there, um, so I don't know what, how, how seriously the police are taking it. Um, I would be shocked if they're not. Um, maybe they're listening now. See my lights. Um, <laughs> yeah, so I don't know, um, but I, they, I, I would hope so. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and there's another question. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> we're seeing some. All right, cool. Um, some other questions about how, how we can deal with these kind of racists online. Um, so Stuart asks, my inclination is to respond to racists online by calling them out. However, I'm also told that this highlights them more and gives them more of a platform. And this, and this possibly results in them getting more followers. Should I continue to call them out? Yeah, it's a, so it's a really difficult question. I mean, I always start by reporting them because the, the most effective way to reduce these people's impact is for them to, to not be on the platform. And sometimes a huge amount of their actual tactic is to try and pull people in, uh, to get people outraged. You know, they, they, they revel in doing exactly that. They revel in causing people pain and anger. And so sometimes it's a, we give them exactly what they want. Um, right here. And then there is also the additional uh, issue of amplification. I mean, someone like Katie Hopkins is a great example of this. She says vile, horrible things. We all get outraged. We all say how angry we are. We all pile in and her profile goes through the roof again. And this has happened time and time again. Um, but on the flip side of that, I understand people thinking, I can't let that sit there and I can't let it lie. You know, I have to feel like I have to challenge it. Um, so it really depends whether or not you think you challenging it is going to have an effect. And I think it has to be always from that position. Is there going to be something positive? Firstly, can you do it safely? Uh, you know, some people just, it's, you, it's not safe to do it. Um, what, you know, they, they might look into you. They might look into your background. They might publish your address if you haven't got it locked down. So the first thing on any of this thing is never do anything until you're really confident you can do it safely. And if you're not confident, don't do it. But secondly is, is there going to be any effect? And, uh, you know, sometimes just, it makes us feel better to say that's horrible, um, but it might be giving them exactly what they want and it might amplify them and it might make more people see that content and it might cause more people pain. So if you start from that position, if you think you can genuinely have effect, go for it. Generally speaking, you're not going to win. You're not going to debate them around. These people are on, on these platforms to be won over. Um, so be careful. I mean, hope not hate as a rule. We don't respond to people on the far right on social media, partly because of, traditional, you know, no platform ideas, not engaging, um, especially at certain levels. I mean, and things like Holocaust denial and the, and the extreme and the, and the real fascists, uh, I would say don't engage on social media. We wouldn't engage them in debate in a, in a university lecture hall. We shouldn't engage them in debate on social media because the things they're saying are not debatable topics. The Holocaust happened. I'm not going to debate you about it. Um, and we don't want to legitimize these questions as debates. So it's difficult. On the, very, on the other end though, you might have a friend that says something unacceptable and you really can make a difference. So it is worth speaking to them. Or you feel someone has just made a mistake, you don't know personally, but has said something a bit silly and you feel that maybe dropping them a message might be 
be useful. And if in that case, go for it. Um, but always do it safely, is what I'll start by saying. Thank you. Um, so moving on, before we try to answer Ashton's good questions that come up, um, I wanted to ask you more about the recent protests following uh, George Floyd's murder. Um, how have the far right reacted to these demonstrations, both in the UK, in the US, and yeah, um, and why do they value statues so much? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the first thing says we've been keen, I hope I hate not to overemphasize on the far right on this issue. This is a kind of a broader discussion about systemic racism, institutional racism, um, and these are these are much broader issues than the far right. And sometimes the overemphasis on the far right has stopped both us, but the anti-racist movement more generally talking about these broader systemic issues. So it's important we don't do that. But it is important, of course, that we do look at how the far right have responded to this and the challenges we're going to face out the back of it. I mean, internationally, uh, we've seen kind of, it's been a, an amazing case study of how the international far right works with narratives crisscrossing the Atlantic, things happening in America being picked up by the European far right, the same messaging, the same lines of attack against BLM, whether or not that's, you know, they're communists, they're extremists, they're terrorists, whether or not it's about Antifa, they're communists, they're terrorists, they're extremists, whatever. We've seen those narratives cross over. In the UK, it's been a really, really worrying, but kind of interesting couple of weeks. So we saw the statues come down in Bristol, and we saw uh, the Senator and we saw the Churchill statue uh, happen. But, you know, a very tiny minority of these massive peaceful protests in London. And it's hard to explain quite how animated elements of the far right that, that I monitor got about this. There was a huge uptick in the amount of people in, uh, writing about this stuff in the far right. The channels that we monitor exploded in that week. And I spoke to some journalists that were ringing up and saying, why do they care about statues, right? And I think it's worth understanding that if you kind of view, especially some of these ultra-nationalists, it's almost like a political religion. You know, it's, it's similar to how one might react in a religion. You know, Churchill is their saint, um, the cenotaph is like, uh, you know, it's, it's sacred. And so they see it was almost that they talk in these terms about desecration of sacred monuments to them. And of course, lots of people, not even, you know, non-far-right people were really angry to see the cenotaph desecrated. And lots of people will say, I understand that, of course. Um, but within the far-right, there's a special anger that comes from this, which is based on, it's a real attack on their sense of identity, their national identity. And what we saw in the UK was, of course, then this explosion of we need to have a demonstration to protect the statues. And it actually came out of the football movement, the, the hooligan networks, first of all. So we started to pick up chatter from hooligan networks around the country talking about coming to protect statues. Then there comes this second wave, which is when the far right pick up on it. Most notably, of course, Tommy Robinson or Stephen Yaxley Lennon's kind of wildly angry video where he's screaming about statues. And if you're a lad and if you're a football lad, you'll be in London. Uh, and he really heats up, these, uh, heats up this issue and it kind of runs through the far right and the far right starts to say, we're going to come down and there's talk of a unity demonstration um, the, the following Saturday in London. Britain first jump on it and they start to talk, you know, we'll come down, start to do it. And I think there's something really interesting which happens in that week, right? Which is the mask slips for a big chunk of the British far right. For the last decade, or even since 9-11, the British far right, or big chunks of the British far right, have told us it's not about race. They don't care about race. It's about culture. It's about Islam. It's not even about Muslims, they say. And yet in that week, we saw that mask slip. We saw how thin that veneer of non-racism is. 
when we, they started to racialize again, to talk about black people, to talk about black crime, to talk about black on white crime, to talk about white lives matter, to adopt these American far right slogans, um, the mask really slipped, um, especially with Britain first. And it became much more explicitly about race um, in a way that they've pretended it's not for a long time. Now, some people balked at this. Tommy Robinson is the perfect example, but a few days before the demonstration, he releases another video and says, I'm happy to wear the anti-Islam hat, but I'm not happy to wear the anti-black community hat. He, he realizes that people are starting to see, uh, and, and a lot of people are starting to turn around and say, this is clearly about more, this is about race now, this is about whiteness. And he didn't feel comfortable with that and he pulled back on that um, because he knew how it would look. Doesn't mean that it wasn't there and it hasn't always been there, but he realized how it looked. So he then he says he won't come, leaving the Saturdays to be just thousands of hooligans turning up and far-right activists, some you know, with a big crossover. And we see violence on the streets of London, we see problems in Bristol, and we see problems in Newcastle as well. Um, and we see small groups turn up all over the place. And I think part of the problem was how the press framed it, and they talked about it in terms of counter-protesters. Um, obviously, Black Lives Matter moved their demonstrations to Friday, which was a stroke of genius. It really reduced the numbers of far-right people that came out, but it also exposed what the far right were actually up to because they weren't counter-protesting anything because there was no protest. They were there to, you know, it was a group of football hooligans with no football on, getting drunk, fighting and attacking the police, the things that they said they didn't like. So I think it was really useful. Now what's gonna be really dangerous moving forward is whether or not as we go through this really exciting moment of discussion about British history, um, Britain's imperial role, slavery, colonialism, the role of whiteness in society, white identity in society, there will of course be a level of backlash to that. There will be a white lash, if you will, as it was some people wrote about in North America when the Obama election, uh, and we've seen how people have tried to exploit that there. And the far right here are gonna try and exploit this here. They're gonna try and be the spokespeople for this new white group, this white identity. And we've got to watch that. And whether or not we start to see some of those elements of the British far right that had ignored that issue for a while, returned to some of the narratives we saw pre 9-11, targeting once again more explicitly the black community, um, talking about things like black crime and the sexualized black crime and the things that we have seen for decade after decade on the far right, whether or not that returns as a more pronounced element of British far right politics, we'll have to watch, it's too early to say, but um, it's a worrying time. And, it, and you know, I mentioned at the beginning, the split and splintered scene, the danger is we start to see a, a, a returning of unity, um, which is something that's always bad. The British far right splits and splinters and it reunifies, and it's always more of a threat when it's unified. Um, we'll have to see if this is something that precipitates that unity, in which case would be really worrying, but currently that hasn't happened. So it's one to watch. Thank you. Um, some questions now. Um, there's one specific question about symbolism um, and how the far right like uses symbols or hate symbols. Uh, so one symbol this person has been analyzing is the okay gesture that has now become the hate symbol. And these symbols have been used throughout the Black Lives Matter protests across the US uh, by counter protests they're claiming to be Antifa uh, and by police officers as well. So the question is, what are your opinions on the best practices to confront covert or even more overt symbols of the far right? Um, what are the, what are the um, symbols that we use in the UK, for example? Right? What are the symbols by far-right groups in the UK? Um, can you tell us more about symbolism? 
Yeah, I mean, so just on that OK symbol, I hope no one gets too angry. I mean, that's the one everyone's talking about here, which is obviously OK, and this has become a big thing on the far right in recent years, and part of it is white power um, is, is how it started. And it's an interesting case study of a symbol in that it started as a joke. It started on the message boards of 4chan and those sorts of places of the internet, where they basically said, let's make up a symbol that will and say it's actually a kind of harmless symbol, and let's make it far right. And of course, then loads of journalists did exactly what they had hoped and wrote these articles saying, isn't it terrible? You know, all these people are using, you know, they've co-opted this sign. And it became a self-fulfilling you know, prophecy and a deeply unhelpful one. Um, and so the first thing is always just to be careful. A huge amount of this stuff is complete nonsense and it's created as nonsense. And they sit back and if, you, if you're not watching those kind of niche areas of the online space, um, you can fall into the trap of giving these people exactly what they want. You know, they'll turn around and say, this is a far-right symbol, and then Vice invariably will write an article saying this is a far-right symbol, and they get what they want. So <clears throat> that is it. But that, all that said, symbolism has always been extremely important on the far-right, um, especially symbols that create a sense of kind of in-group identity. Um, it's about, you know, it creates an internal culture in the movement. You know, these little things where, you know, it's almost like in jokes between friends create unity in a group. You know, you've got, you, you know, you see the world in a way that no one else does because you use these little words or use, and it creates that, you know, closer friendship. That's the same in the far right. They create these symbols and these pieces of art and it contributes to their sense of collective identity. Um, and it's ways that they notice each other. Um, you know, sometimes it's little things, you know, like a little badge. It could be, you know, the famous one a few years ago was Pepe the Frog. And you'd see it emerge on people's coats or jackets. You even saw it in places like Hyde Park or Kekistan was another one that was a big a few years ago. These symbols are rapidly changing and ever changing. Um, we've seen a massive increase. I mean, um, the ones that we would have monitored through the post-war period, of course, they did change with new groups and new movements. But there was a kind of stock set of symbols um, and runes and those sorts of things that had been around for what since the 20s or if not before. Um, now they change every week. You know, the symbols that we try and keep up with, uh, you know, someone comes up with a new one and it, and it changes and the internet is just, and it's not far right specifically, that just mimics the way that the internet works. It's the, it's the mimetic nature, it's the culture, it's the memes. They change on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, and some of them take off and some of them don't. So it's very difficult for things like law enforcement and it's very difficult for anti-fascists like us to, to kind of pick up on these things because they change so rapidly. Um, but we try, we try and, we try and watch it. Um, and you know, some of them are designed to go under the radar, some of them are designed to get widespread appeal. But I don't even know if I answered that question and I just talked for ages. But. Uh, thank you. Um, so feeding into like the internationalism of our right, there's a question about how big a threat is international, how big a threat is international networking on the far right at the moment. I know you co-wrote a, co a book uh, with a couple of the researchers about the international alt-right, far right. Talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks for the plug. Yeah, available in all good bookstores, all, all, all bad ones as well. Um, yeah, no, the international nature of the far right is, is central to understanding the modern far right. Um, a huge amount of what we look at and monitor now is transnational in nature. It crosses borders. You know, it's not just about collaboration between national groups, although that does of course happen. You know, traditional far right groups that are British working with German far right groups, that happens. Uh, as, but it's always happened through the, you know, for, for the last century. But 
now what we see is genuinely transnational phenomena. They emerge in an international space online and they cross borders. And that can mean someone in England, I mean, this is a real difficulty for us, right? Uh, is that the days when we could say, you know, someone would ring us up and say, who do I worry about in my community? And you could say, oh, it's racist Dave at number nine. You know, he's the one who's in the British National Party. He's the one handing out leaflets outside the school. Now it could be a kid sat in his bedroom, you know, in Woking, looking at far-right content being produced in Ohio or and speaking with far-right activists in Japan uh, on a daily basis. And the way that people can engage with this content is genuinely international. And this causes all sorts of problems. Partly, of course, it's a problem because it's very hard to deal with and, and it will stop because it's not, it's not about where they are and often it's anonymous. But also, what it does is it essentially allows the far right to crowdsource its politics. <coughs> so, excuse me. So, if you're looking at, you know, it's not just that someone in uh, Sunderland is going to get angry about halal chicken nuggets being served in their local primary school. It could be that someone in Sunderland is getting angry about halal chicken nuggets being served at a primary school in Munich. And what it does is it contributes to this cumulative idea that it's, there's, a, there's an international global crisis. And so what you see is you see these individual cases being picked up by the local far right, amplified, especially on social media, picked up by people what we call super sharers, you know, people like Pamela Geller in America in the anti-Muslim movement, for example. And then she will put out a story and say, halal chicken nuggets in Munich. And then it becomes, it causes anger across the global far right. And then the other element that's really worrying is of course finances. We see, you know, now they can crowdsource money. I mean, the big example of this came in 2017 when the identitarian movement had boats in the a boat in the Mediterranean, a mission called Defend Europe. They raised hundreds of thousands of euros from all over the world, big chunks of it from America, crowdsourced online, bringing in money. So if you have a thing that catches the imagination of the international far right, it can bring in huge amounts of money in, in quite unprecedented ways. So it's a huge challenge. It's a real challenge. And uh, it's about thinking more globally now. Um, it's, we have to think beyond who is the group in our local community, who is the person or, or who is even the group in our local country. We have to think about this phenomenon more globally because it can be affecting at times. This movement will pick up and direct its focus at a specific country or even a specific issue or town. And they could be doing it anywhere in the world. And I always go back to uh, Le Pen, made a video uh, during the presidential election a few years ago where she thanks the online militants, she says. And underneath there's this first comment is from this Australian guy saying, I just sit in my bedroom making content for Le Pen and sending it out online. And now look what's happened, she's thanking me. Um, this is how the far right world operates now. It's, it's fundamentally, global. it's a global movement uh, and that's terrifying. Uh, but then we have to be global in our opposition to it as well. Thank you, Joe. Um, I think there's a good time for us to move on to a lot of questions that come in. I will try to go through as many as possible. Some of them are similar, uh, some of them are very specific. If I don't, uh, if you don't reply to these questions, you can always send them into info at popnahe.org.uk or charity at popnahe.org.uk. We will try to, we have some materials of these, um, uh, these questions that come up. So we can always send you material or articles or, or any of that. So um, apologies if we don't answer all the questions, um, but I'm going to try to go through as many as possible. Um, so the first question is, are there areas of the country where the far right is more active and prevalent? Kevin asks. 
Yeah, and there are. I mean, uh, it depends with different elements of the movement. So it's not obviously there's kind of ranging from the less extreme to the more extreme. Um, at the kind of more street level, the northeast uh, has had a problem in the recent years. I think uh, lots of people from the northeast will, will confirm. Um, in terms of street movement stuff, and we saw that reemerge at the weekend actually when we saw the numbers in Newcastle being quite strong at the anti Black Lives Matter demonstration. Um, but that's also, I think, borne out in some of the arrest stats in terms of terrorism people as well. Um, and then, often, of course, you know, you've got those uh, communities that were traditionally strong British National Party communities, so Dagenham, Stoke, Burn etc. Um, all of which have been thankfully kicked out the British National Party. Uh, but you know, there's also Thurrock and those sorts of areas where the Brexit Party did very well or, or have certainly targeted. And then London, just because London's uh, the capital and it's, it's the biggest city, so you see large numbers, um, it's the easiest place to pull out large numbers onto the streets in the UK. Um, so it's, it's, it's the difficulty is, is that like, we would have had a much clearer, when you've got an electoral, a big electoral threat, it's much easier because you can just look at the vote levels. You can say they got this many votes here versus that many votes there. Um, it's much more difficult when you look at, say, you know, a far-right YouTuber creates a video that has 100,000 views. You don't know which country they're from, let alone which community in the UK. Um, so it becomes really difficult to work those things out. So you end up looking at things like arrests numbers or trying to understand when we do kind of intelligence work, trying to work out where those groups are strongest at the moment. Thank you. Um, and there is another question. Is the far right, um, is the far right continued existence attributed to the failure of majority white society to actively stand up and speak against, uh, against it? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, there's, I mean, there's, I mean, there's loads of people that are speaking out against it, but there's also a huge chunk of society that has not deemed it as a problem or not deemed it as a sufficient enough problem to stand up and do something about it. Um, I think that's something that's been really welcome in the past few weeks is that conversation being had. Um, you know, I mean, the Colston statue, whatever you think about how it was ripped down, you know, the reason it stayed up is because the majority community didn't speak out on that. There's been lots of people raising that issue for decades and not enough people cared about it to do anything about it and, and to lend their voice to that. So, yes, I think that there is uh, an element of that. And at the end of the day, it's going to be the majority white community. Um, it's the responsibility because the people that are engaging this politics are from the white community. You know, there's an element of getting the house in order. Um, and that's about speaking to our friends and our family and, and dealing with those sorts of issues. Um, and some of the stuff we talked about, the press and the media, and also trying to work with communities of colour better in a, in a more engaged way to listen to those communities in a way that hasn't happened properly in recent decades. So, yes, I mean, I think it's a huge contributing factor as well as lots of other ones, you know. Okay. Another question. Given the increase in rhetoric against anti-fascist organization in the USA, have you seen that translates into greater antagonism towards or increased difficulties for us or other anti-fascist organizations in the UK? That's something we're really worried about. Um, I mean, it's a difficult one with the, the Trump saying that he's, I mean, so for those who don't know, Trump's come out and said that he wants to ban Antifa as a banned terrorist organization. And it's a difficult one because Antifa is, is a broadly speaking like a movement in North America and it's not an organization as such, it's a kind of social movement. So it's almost akin to saying, you know, I'm going to ban, I'm going to ban vegetarians as a terrorist organization. It doesn't quite make sense. But the danger is, is that what you've seen is, is this kind of conspiratorial notion that anti-fascists are the real fascists. 
um, and that they are the dangerous and criminal ones. And I think what this is emblematic of is a broader crumbling of the societal anti-fascist consensus. Um, the general understanding that being an anti-fascist is obvious and good, um, which certainly in Britain was, uh, was very much the kind of societal consensus. It didn't mean people weren't racist, but, but it did mean that they thought Nazis were bad. Um, and any crumbling of that is difficult. Um, we've certainly seen people in the UK far right specifically pick up on that narrative. Nigel Farage was on it like that. He was straight on it. Let's do it here. Let's ban it here. Let's ban. And the problem is, is that if Antifa, not being a formal organisation, essentially means if you can ban Antifa, you can ban anyone that disagrees with fascists. Um, and that's a terrifying thought. Now, we are a long way away from that in the UK. I don't want to kind of cause some uh, fear-mongering that the Conservatives are going to come out and ban anti-fascism. That's just not going to happen. Um, but we do need to look at how it's going to might be a more hostile environment for us to act in. Right? In terms of us believing that our politics are just natural and the majority position has always been where we came from. And sometimes we were just, the anti-fascist movement was the most active element of a broader societal consensus. And some of that's being challenged, I think, in the last 10 years. I think increasingly the idea is that some people are starting to view it as two groups of extremists, fascists and anti-fascists. Um, and that's really, really difficult. And that's really worrying in terms of getting broad support. Anti-fascism is at its best when the whole of society dislikes fascists. <laughs> that's when it's most successful. And any challenge to that is really worrying. So we need to be careful. And I think we also need to be ready to look to America and there's going to be people in America and anti-fascists that are going to be targeted for this. Their activism is going to be suppressed. And we need to be internationalist about that and ready to support them. Thank you. Um, I'm going to uh, try to wrap up with the last question. Apologies again if we haven't um, answered any questions. We will have more webinars around other different topics. Um, but uh, this last question I just want to um, um, ask from Lauren who asked, do you think the best way to tackle the far right is to educate the far right younger generation or try to tackle the set views of those who already are in the far right? It's a mixture, right? It's difficult. I mean, something like hope not hate, right? We, I mean, we don't have the resources to spend our entire lives trying to de-radicalize people. So I think what it's about understanding is, is that the far right is not a homogenous block. There's different elements to it. At its most extreme core, these people just should just be opposed. These are dangerous, violent, vile people with bad politics, right? racist hatred. And we, it's not our job to spend our entire time trying to engage with those people and win them back around. That's a huge job. Maybe it's the government's job, I don't know. But that's about marginalizing the threat that those people pose. Right, at the kind of extreme end of the far right. It's about trying to make sure that their voices are suppressed. It's about making sure that people don't become radicalized by them. It's about getting them off mainstream platforms. It's about marginalizing them in society and keeping them away from the mainstream. Right? It's not our job to try and engage. Or it's, just, it's just too time costly and it's, it's not, we haven't got the time. That doesn't mean that people in that world can't be changed. You know, we've got people at Hope Not Hate who were in the most extreme elements of the far right that have completely changed their life and turned around and come to us and, and de-radicalized and that is possible and it's really valuable but actually around that kind of core at the center which is about that we have to essentially try and build a wall around is a much more broad disparate group which might agree with some of these views and disagree with other of those views and that's the group we have to speak to right that's the group we have to, have to engage with not everyone who voted for the british national party in dagenham is a nazi 
Right? Lots of people were angry about being ignored by the Labour Party for decades. They were angry about uh, all sorts of, you know, the Ford factory closing down, jobs going abroad, lack of housing, schooling, education, and the British National Party turned up and gave them an obvious answer. Um, those are communities that we have to speak to. Those are the people that we need to engage with. Um, it's about saying we're not going to engage with kind of the people pushing the politics of hatred. But in some ways, the people that are hearing that message, we have to engage with them. And we're in a really you know, exciting place to be able to do that. Those are the people we can win back. Those are the ones that we can explain to and engage with. And if we do that properly, we massively reduce the reach of the far right. And so sometimes it's not about, you don't just draw a big fence around everyone who has a view we disagree with. We build a fence around the, the people that are pushing the politics of hatred. And we engage with the people that are hearing that message and try and explain to them why we think it's wrong. And I think that kind of twin approach, uh, approach can be really positive. And it's what Hope Not Hate have been working at since its founding. It was about going back into those engage and win them back. And that's what I think made Hope Not Hate special and still does. And, and, and so it's about doing those, that twin track approach, you know. Thank you, Joe. Um, I know we're running out of time now and the people are leaving. So I want to thank you. Thank you, Joe, for um, uh, for answering these questions. And again, apologies if um, if we haven't answered any questions. We will have more webinars coming up with other members of our team. Um, and if there's any particular subject or any particular topic that you want us to discuss, email me at charity at hopenahate.org.uk if you want to engage um, in our work, uh, we have a couple of local groups around um, the country um, and you can just email charity at hopenahate.org.uk to engage. If you want to create a local group, that's also possible. Um, just email us, contact us and I'll be happy to help um, with this. I uh, just want to say thank you and again for joining in. This, been, this has been great. It's been recorded so we will be able to send this out um, to everyone. Uh, I also want to say thank you, Joe, uh, in the background for monitoring and setting this up. And thank you all for joining. Uh, I know it's sometimes a bit awkward to say bye on Zoom call. So I would like to ask um, Joe if you end this call. So thank you. Uh, bye. Thanks for coming. Bye.